We can read again from the beginning of the chapter. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. Amen. I get a feeling that I might be up against it this evening in, in uh, proclaiming uh, God's word from this portion because uh, it's quite obvious that there are issues here in these verses that present themselves to us and we want to follow them on. We want to, I'm sure we expect to be looking on uh, questions such as wives submitting to husbands and whether you wear jewellery or what you put on your face and so on. And we're not going to go any of these places uh, this evening and I hope that that won't be a, too much of a disappointment. But what I want us to do is to look at these verses under the heading of true versus false hope. True versus false hope. As we go into the new year, uh, what are some of the things that we are going to be tempted to look to for the answers to our problems? What are some of the things which will turn out to be false hopes? All of us have got problems and difficulties in our lives. We can take that as a given. Uh, so happens that uh, they are of different scale at different times in our lives. But all of us uh, as Christians have challenges and circumstances that either we wish would change or we know aren't going to change and we realize that we need to adapt to them and we need wisdom for that. And all around us, the world is offering us solutions uh, which in the end are actually going to fail us because they are not solutions which are built upon God's word. And sometimes even within the church, our well-meaning friends can make suggestions as to how we respond to our difficulties. And actually they don't go deep enough. They are looking only on the surface and they result in false hope. But there's a true hope. A hope in God. That's the expression that's mentioned uh, here in relation to these holy women of the past. They put their hope in God. There is a true hope that we can have. A hope in God that provides us with principles by which we can meet our challenges. And so what we're going to do as we look at these verses is that we're going to begin with a specific situation, a specific problem actually in the first century. And we're going to see how Peter addresses uh, the problem of these women. See how one possible way of addressing it would have been a futile way which would have delivered a false hope. And how Peter points them and us to a true hope, a hope in God. 
what I want us to do is to, to see this tonight as a kind of clearing of the ground because we're going to be looking uh, in a little series at how hope relates to different areas of our lives. And so the, this evening we're going to be uh, looking at what is a false hope and clearing the ground uh, before we go on to further uh, consideration of the importance of, of Christian hope in our lives. Peter has been looking at not only in this chapter, but in the uh, preceding chapter, on different sets of relational circumstances. Uh, the citizen and his government, the slave or the worker and his master, and the wife and her husband. Here, in these opening verses, he's specifically looking at how a believing wife uh, is to relate to an unbelieving husband. One of the commentators, Ed Clowney, points out that in the Roman Empire at the time, there was a wariness that the, the stability of the empire was threatened by the trend for wives to affiliate to a different religion from their husband. They were, they were fairly relaxed about how people worshipped. The important thing was that the Roman Empire hung together well. And there was a trend for women to... Uh, go and affiliate to the cult of Bacchus or the worship of the goddess Isis. And this was a trend that was being resisted. And so you can understand that when some of the women began to follow Christ and their husbands uh, were resisting this, that there was a tension here uh, and that there was a, a societal pressure, a civic pressure on the wife to conform to her husband's religion. And from the wife's part, she was desperately keen that her husband should come and share the faith in Christ that she had come to have. And so it's not hard to imagine, is it, the, the kind of dilemma that these women were finding themselves in and the, the perplexities, the perplexing thoughts that were going through their minds. How do I get through to him? He's just not interested in anything that I say to him. Life is becoming totally miserable. He's snappy towards me every time I open my mouth. And in fact, he seems much more interested in that pagan uh, slave girl that we have in the house than he is in me these days. How do I get him to follow Christ so that our marriage can be like uh, those couples in the church who were converted at the same time? They seem so happy. I am miserable. So here's the problem. First century woman, deeply discouraged because none of her efforts to bring her unbelieving husband to Christ are having any impact. Now that's one specific, that, that's the, the specific issue that we have here. But we could think of a number of other uh, problems that people have in our, in our lives and how we want to change, how we want to see these changed and what direction we, we look in to seek change in our lives. Stick with marriage for a moment and think of a, a modern day marriage situation. A couple, a Christian couple, for whom things are not going well in the marriage. On the surface, everything seems okay. Uh, they're both turning up at church. Uh, they're both outwardly good Christians. Everything seems well. But 
in the home and when there's no one watching, things are really bad. The day is punctuated by fallouts and shouting matches and frosty silences. And secretly, both of them think that there's no future in their marriage. They think that their marriage is quietly dying. What do they do? Or think of a different situation. Think of uh, somebody who has come to the conclusion that uh, his life is a complete mess. Think of a, of a guy called Bill. Uh, a guy who uh, was a, a lorry driver. He had a bad accident. He was involved. He was guilty. He was dismissed. Uh, he's not been able to have employment since then. And he has come to the conclusion that if anything is going to go wrong, it will go wrong in his life. And he becomes increasingly bitter about uh, the turn that his life has taken. Uh, he has well-meaning Christian friends uh, who come with Christian advice for him. Uh, they tell him that God is sovereign. Uh, they tell him that he needs to read his Bible more. They tell him that he needs to think of others more than himself and so on. And Bill, uh, if he's quite honest, finds that advice uh, boring and rather irritating. It doesn't seem to be helpful for him. Now, these are of course just made up situations, but they are real in every other sense because every Christian has uh, battles to contend with. Uh, the reality of indwelling sin means that we have to confront difficult situations in our lives and sin is deceptive. It sneaks up on us. It takes us by surprise. These kind of situations, uh, these imaginary situations that I've painted, they don't just happen all of a sudden. It's like the, the proverbial frog uh, in the, the pan of, of water that's gradually raised to boiling point. The frog doesn't know that, that anything's happened until it's too late. And he's frazzled. And it's the same with sin. Things can simply go on unchecked in a marriage. Attitudes uh, become uh, unhelpful, ungodly. Uh, things go from bad to worse. We develop uh, a bitter outlook, a resentful outlook. Uh, we fail to, to try to see things uh, from uh, a biblical perspective. Uh, we become lazy. And over time, uh, we come to the point of view that... Uh, my life is completely ruined. I am not going to get anywhere. This is just the way it is. And for people who are in these situations, who are struggling, uh, who are in situations where they don't feel uh, they are doing the, the right thing, who want their lives to change, then there are plenty of remedies out there which are quite attractive because they seem to be very direct, very practical, very sensible remedies. And yet, the Bible warns us against looking to the world's remedies, remedies which don't go to the heart, which simply are, are superficial. And Paul speaks of them as false and captivating philosophies. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 to 8, uh, Paul is warning uh, his readers against looking for the quick fix to life situations, quick fixes which are not gospel remedies. He writes, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted 
and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So Paul is saying there are going to be solutions offered to you for the problems that you have in life. But many of them out there are simply going to be this, based on this hollow and deceptive philosophy on worldly thinking rather than on Christ. And the, these uh, solutions which are based on this hollow and deceptive philosophy are by and large uh, remedies that simply look on the surface, on the externals, rather than go to the root of the problem, which is the human heart. Let's go back to Peter's girls in the first century. Their problem we saw is that they're not attracting their husbands to the faith. Context, verse 1 and 2, wives in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without talk by the behavior of their wives. In verse 6, Peter points to Sarah as a model for the women and he says in verse 6, you are her daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, he's implying that it's possible to be pushed in the direction of this worldly and deceptive philosophy, these worldly remedies by fear. And so he encourages them not to give in to fear. Now again, if you think into the situation of these ladies, it's a very understandable response that they would be afraid. They're afraid of losing their husbands. They don't see them becoming interested spiritually in their newfound faith. And they are afraid. They're afraid that uh, as a result of losing out, their husband will simply walk away. It's affecting uh, the whole marriage. And life could be pretty hard as a wife in the first century in the Roman Empire. So what is she to do? What would you do if you were a woman in that situation? What advice would you give to a woman who found herself in that situation? It seems likely that some of them were advised to make themselves more attractive to their husbands. Perhaps someone came along and said, well, you know, the reason that your husband's not uh, showing any interest at all in uh, what you do on Sunday is that you've simply become, become unattractive to him. You're far too dowdy. You need to brighten up. Uh, you need to uh, go and down to the beauty parlor and have a makeover. And once he sees the new you, he'll be won over. Now that's the kind of advice which is, is mainstream in our own culture. It's mainstream non-Christian philosophy. Looks are all important. If you look at the 
television adverts at this time of year, it's quite clear that, uh, that that is what people think. We're bombarded by adverts which are going to adjust our, our shape or our appearance in some way. Now, obesity is very much a health issue, but it's uh, the, the drive to lose weight and so on is very much driven by a desire to improve your appearance or your, your feeling of well-being. And if we take an example close to our own situation, close to home, we look at Weight Watchers, which is a, a global business. Uh, it has a turnover of $1.4 billion around the world. It's an incredible figure. And we wish them well, of course. But the fact is that we can oversell the benefits of modifying your appearance. It's simply changing the surface. And Peter points out here that pinning your hopes on how you look is to be taken in by a hollow and deceptive philosophy. And he says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. Peter's saying there is something which is far more alluring, which makes a far greater impact than uh, your outward appearance. Whether you've got a nice tan or a good hairstyle or, or good clothes, there is something which is much deeper and beautiful and attractive than any of these things. And it's the inner beauty of a quiet spirit. Now, we were thinking of that this morning, weren't we, when we were thinking about the, the beauty that is in Jesus, the beauty that was displayed uh, in his coming down for us, in his taking the form of a servant, the beauty of his humility. There is a, a winsomeness and an attractiveness in that, which draws us to Jesus. Peter's saying that they need to look at that kind of beauty rather than being uh, hoodwinked by those who say that uh, they can simply place their hopes on adjusting the way they look. Adjusting your appearance is just one way uh, of, of coping in a wrong fashion with your problem. Uh, you can adjust your circumstances in other ways. Uh, for example, you can simply move away from your problem. I've come across uh, a number of people who have struggled with addictions, especially alcoholism, who have thought to themselves, if I simply move on, then my problem, my struggle will be at an end. If I can move into a new location where I have new friends, where I'm not living next door to the pub, where there are not these... Uh, temptations in my face all the time and things will be okay and they've moved house and they've moved job and what's happened is simply their problem has followed them because their problem wasn't one of their circumstances the problem was deep inside and it was never addressed we can make other kinds of responses and sometimes they they will sound more Christian uh, and yet, uh, they're 
only going so far. For example, the, the imaginary couple who aren't getting on well, they could uh, be counselled to improve their communication skills. They could begin to talk more to one another. Uh, they could be taught how to recognise the needs of the other person and respond to them. But in the end of the day, if nothing deeper happens than that, then all they've done is to learn some of the techniques of relating within a marriage. There's been no inner work, there's been no heart change. And it's that which Peter is pointing towards. Think of the, the ex-lorry driver who thinks that uh, life has passed him by, that he's a complete loser, that nothing is going to change. He might be encouraged to, to, to simply be more positive in his thinking. He might be encouraged to a greater self-esteem. You know, you've, you've got to think better of yourself. You've got to think, uh, uh, you're not to be so down on yourself. You've got to love yourself. If you can't accept yourself, how can you accept and love others? Now, you come across that in, in Christian circles. It's quite popular uh, to go to the golden rule. Uh, Jesus says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And people say, well, there you are. Uh, you've got to begin by loving yourself. If you're not loving yourself, then how can you love others? And of course, as we know only too well, the problem with all of us isn't that we love ourselves too little, but that we love ourselves far too much. Yes, there are people for whom uh, the self-loathing or, or various uh, psychological problems like that have to be dealt with. But by and large... By and large, we're not insufficiently in love with ourselves. Nor are our lives empty, needing to be filled with affirmation. Our life is a battlefield. Our hearts are battlefields of, of desires, conflicting desires. And we need to repent of these wrong desires before we can then turn to Christ and find fullness in Him. So you see, there are... A whole lot of remedies out there that, that promise hope. If you'll only look better, make yourself more attractive, change job, change your location, develop better self-esteem, love yourself. All of these things are, are promised to make a change to our situation. And yet they're all based on hollow and deceptive philosophy that focuses on the outside rather than on the heart. And we're driven to them. We're driven into their arms so often by fear. And Peter says, do not give in to fear. But, like the holy women of the past, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. So our only real hope of, of change in our lives is not by changing our circumstances, or our attitudes, or our thinking, or whatever, but is in our relationship, our heart relationship with God. And we only change, we only overcome our problems when Christ changes our heart first, and then consequently our behavior changes. Put your hope in God, Peter says. Put your hope in God. That is so simple. Put your hope in God. What does it mean to put your hope in God? I want to suggest to you that there 
are at least four movements in responding to this command, put your hope in God. And only one of them has to do with our outward behavior. Put your hope in God. The first of these has to do with an honest repentance of the fact that up until that point we haven't been putting our hope in God, but we've been putting our hope in God's substitutes. We've looked to things which were never going to provide uh, the, the power to change. We need to acknowledge that we accepted the remedies of the world. We need to acknowledge that we placed our hope in them, that we were wrong to do that. And so we need to intelligently, thoughtfully, and sincerely repent. And having done that, we need to secondly direct our focus on God rather than ourselves or on our thinking or on our behavior. And so we repent, we turn our backs on our past uh, confidence in the world's remedies and we look to God. We direct our thought, our affections to God. That's why worship uh, is always at the heart of real change. And, when, and it's the reason why our, our true hope is found in having a proper heart relationship with the living God. Now, there's a very helpful example of this in the psalm that we sung, uh, Psalm 73. Because there's a problem in the psalm, uh, there's a wrong attitude that's revealed, and then there's a proper solution. And Asaph in Psalm 73 has got a problem because he's got a bitter heart. He is looking around at the, the way that ungodly people seem to get on in the world, and people who follow the Lord don't seem to do so well. And he's getting really mad inside. Why should it be like this? Why, why does it not pay to follow the Lord? As for me, my feet had almost slipped, he says. He's quite candid about how he felt. And then for Esau, the turning point came when he went into the sanctuary. It was in the place of worship that he began to see things from a true perspective. It was in beholding the beauty of the Lord. His heart was touched. He became enthralled by the Lord. And he recognized that he had no one in heaven but the Lord and being on the earth. There was no one really he desired beside him. He was full. His life was full. Why should he envy the wicked? The turning point was in the place of worship. And so likewise, we're called to put our hope in God, to look at him, to remind ourselves of his promises, to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind ourselves when we are in this situation that we are children of God. Our sin has been cancelled. We are completely accepted by our Holy Father. And it's wonderful to be in that situation. If the gospel did nothing more than I mean that Christ tolerated us. Wouldn't that be amazing that he should tolerate us who are worms, sinners and rebels. But he loves us. He loves us. And uses the most intimate imagery to speak of that love. Speaks of his church as his bride. 
draws us to himself and closes us in his arms. And he is committed to us. He's committed to you if you're a believer. He's committed to me. He is sovereign over this universe so that everything, the, the ordering of the orbits of the planets, the movement of the subatomic particles, all of these things is directed by God for the good of his children. Truly incredible. And so, it's our, in our relationship with God, it's in our worship of God that our hope achieves its proper focus. And so the issue comes down to whether we are really worshipping. It's not a question of whether we spend, of how long we spend worshipping God, but if when we are alone with God, we are truly gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. If we are in love with the Lord Jesus, if he has our hearts, that, that is the issue. We hope in God by looking to him in adoration. And thirdly, we find our rest in him. If we are hoping in him, we find our rest in him. We rest in the knowledge that when we have Christ, we have all things. If you know the one through whom and for whom the worlds were made, then you have everything. There's nothing that can be added to that sufficiency. And the difficulties and the problems, the mountains in our lives, they may be there until the day that we die. God may not remove them. But if we have our hope in God, if our rest is found in him, rather than our success as husbands or wives or as workmen, or in being capable, whatever area it is that we feel deficient in, if our hope is in God, then we are free. We are free. Nothing can touch us if God is our treasure. I always think that the words that the Lord spoke to Abraham, uh, when Abraham must have felt so alone, wondering how on earth things were going to work out, and God assured Abraham, I am uh, your shield and your very great reward. Well, these are wonderful words. God is your shield and your very great reward. Whom have I in heaven but you? And it's from that position of having our hope in God, in resting in him, in knowing that he is our treasure, that we can bring our life into line with the gospel. And the order is always so important. Uh, heart change and then behavior change. Behavior does change. For, for Peter's girls, the behavioral change meant they began to rely not on lipstick and paint, but on an inner beauty Hoping in God and refusing to be driven by fear, their behavior is now very different from their pagan friends. Now the difference isn't that they now stop paying attention to their looks. That's not what is being implied here. But they stopped relying upon their appearance. Their hope 
is not in their appearance. Their hope is in God. And that has brought to them a new freedom. A new freedom. A new inner beauty. A quiet spirit. Which is so, so much more attractive and alluring than the false hope on which they had been encouraged to rely. True hope and false hope. May God enable us to turn from false hopes and to place our hope in God, even as these holy women of the past hoped in God. Amen. May God bless to us the preaching of his word. Let's, uh, let's finish our worship tonight uh, in a song that encourages us to focus upon the Lord Jesus. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills the breast, but sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. Jesus, the very thought of thee will stand as we sing this.